Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isker, and we're going to cover a lot of different topics today. We've got the Durham indictment. We've got a really interesting and worthy of discussion amicus brief and the Supreme Court Second Amendment case. We've got a little bit of an odd and interesting defamation case involving Devin Nunes. And then Sarah is going to cap it all off with perhaps the most valuable advice you'll receive this week, how to get away with murder. Yes, that's right. How to get away with murder. So you will not want to miss that. But Let's start, shall we, with the indictment handed down last week on the 16th, United States of America versus Michael Sussman. And I'll just kind of run through the facts uh, real fast and, and Sarah, get your reaction. Um, okay, so basically it's a, it's a pretty simple thing and that is in October of 2016, and I'm looking at the indictment right now, um, as everyone knows, about a week before the election, media outlets began to report that there was an investigation, that there was, there was a secret channel of communications between the Trump organization and a Russia, Russian bank, I believe Alpha Bank. Um, the, according to these articles, you, intelligence officials possessed information concerning, quote, what cyber experts said appeared to be a mysterious computer back channel between the Trump organization and the Russian bank. It says, that the FBI had spent weeks examining computer data showing an odd stream of activity, okay? The FBI says the indictment had, in fact, initiated an investigation of these allegations in response to a meeting that Michael Sussman, the lawyer at a major firm, requested and held with the FBI General Counsel on or about September 19th, 2016 at FBI headquarters. Sussman provided white papers along with data files. But the problem is, Sussman lied about the capacity, lying to the FBI, providing in which he was providing the allegations. Specifically, he falsely stated he was not doing his work on the aforementioned, for on the aforementioned allegations for any client, which led the FBI, FBI general counsel to understand that Sussman was acting as a good citizen. In fact, as alleged in further detail, the statement was intentionally false and misleading because in assembling and conveying the allegations, Sussman acted on behalf of specific clients, namely a tech firm, a tech industry executive, an internet company, and the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. And this was material because if the FBI knew his clients and the nature of his work, it would have more fully been able to assess and uncover the origins of the data. So to put that in plain English, a Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer uh, told the FBI about an alleged link between the Trump organization and a Russian bank. Didn't he, he lied about his affiliations that led the FBI to maybe believe it was more credible than it really was. And here we have the indictment. Sarah, your thoughts. Uh, first of all, disclaimer, I worked at the Department of Justice from February 2018 for about 18 months. Uh, so I was there during the Mueller investigation uh, and for the beginnings of the Durham investigation. I will not be discussing anything that I learned during that time. But based on the indictment that we Come see on, Sarah. here, <laughs> uh, look, here are some things that stood out to me. One, 
there is certainly an institutional question that I have uh, in which did this make any difference? So they are claiming in the indictment that the FBI would have um, been more skeptical, looked into how this information was coming about, and that would have more quickly revealed that the information was useless. Um, A, I'm not sure I take that for granted. Um, In this case, there is, at least in the public domain, some evidence that this attorney, Sussman, was acquaintances, friend acquaintances, professional acquaintances with the FBI general counsel. Uh, And so when your buddy comes and tells you he has some stuff, it matters whether it matters if he was working on behalf of a client uh, when he brought you that information. Second, the FBI got to the right answer regardless. There was no connection between the Trump campaign, the Trump organization, and Alpha Bank. As it turned out, uh, a company that was doing mass marketing for the Trump campaign used this server that had an email address that had Trump in the email address. And that had some pinging with this Russian alpha bank, but like the, nope, the FBI finds that there is absolutely nothing to that allegation. Third, the, um, Russia investigation is not triggered by this. Right. It becomes part of it, but it is not the triggering event as far as we know uh, in the public, and nor is that alleged in the indictment. So backing up here real quick, there's no smoking gun here on, aha, the whole Russia hoax thing, because this didn't start the whole investigation. It was debunked um, separate and before the Mueller report, by the way. Um, and you have to show that, but for him misleading the FBI general counsel, the FBI somehow like wouldn't have looked into this or it would have changed their investigation, that it was a materially misleading fact, giving a misleading fact to the FBI or a false fact to the FBI, uh, or federal investigators in general is not by itself the crime. It has to be material. And so what he's going to argue in his defense is that this was not material. And it wasn't material because the FBI got the right answer anyway. And it wasn't material because it wouldn't have changed the investigative steps that they would have taken because they would have started looking into this regardless. Um, It is not crazy to me to think that you find something in your opposition research on another candidate, your opposing candidate, but it's a crime. And therefore you turn it over to the FBI and the FBI is like, yeah, that, yeah, I guess you found out that he murdered someone. I guess we will look into that. that doesn't make it not true. Right. So that's Sussman's defense. Um, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a decent defense. It's not, eh. it's not killer, but it's there. Here's I would the problem. Decent is optimistic. Yeah, go ahead. Here's the problem. And it's the best. It's it. It brought a smile to my face because it is so perfect. The way he gets busted for this and the reason he will plead out on this is because of the billing records. He <laughs> billed his time and in doing so labeled the time he was billing as talking about the server issue. <laughs> so when he goes to the <laughs> FBI general counsel and says, how did you uncover this? Oh, no, I'm just a good citizen. I was not working on behalf of any uh, client. 
And then your billing records say working on the server issue with another <laughs> attorney who's in-house on the Clinton campaign, as best I can tell. Um, woof. Like that's, then you're really, you're, you're going to have to lean entirely on the materiality. Which is going to be a lift. That's going to be a lift, I think. But you know, you know why? Reminds- also, because the FBI, like who gets to determine whether it was material? Uh, the FBI, the ones who just indicted you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The materiality is typically a, a low bar for the very uh, simple reason that the FBI can always sort of spin out the what would we what we would have done otherwise scenario. I mean, it's sort of an unprovable assertion, right? So they can say, well, we would have put the brakes on this. We would have, you know, we wouldn't have opened an investigation right away if we'd heard this was Hillary Clinton's lawyer. Um, but you know what this reminds me of? And I, I just this is a theme, a theme advisory opinions, listeners. The amount of time or the frequency in which very smart people essentially put in writing or say out loud on tape, I'm criming now, criming. I just crimed. Here's two. I just crimed you. I'm bill, I'm crimed. I'm billing you for two hours for my criming. I mean, that that's a now again, that's the materiality issue. There's gonna be a defense, but my goodness, just putting that in the billing report after you've affirmatively told the FBI something else. Wow. Um, yeah, like let's pull back a little bit more big picture on this because I saw a lot of commentary or, you know, some of it's more uh, commentary is a generous term, maybe more sniping than commentary that the Russia, this is all more, as you were saying that this is all more evidence that the Russia investigation was entirely a creation of sort of this Hillary Clinton oppo research, um, effort combined with the gullible and, or cooperative FBI, the Steele dossier, which was, you know, a Clinton campaign product, this, which was a Clinton campaign lawyer. And it seems like there were kind of two things happening at once, which is just so typical of the kind of choice that Americans faced in 2016. One was you had the Hillary world generating, in some cases, what was kind of transparently garbage opposition research and circulating it around as if it was this incredibly, you know, evidence of this incredibly awful um, reality that, which wasn't a reality that Donald Trump was effectively compromised by Russian intelligence. And then here's this other guy going to the FBI about this story that didn't check out. All of that was happening and it was bad. At the same time, completely independent of anything to do with Hillary, (laughs) you had the campaign chair for the for uh, the Donald Trump campaign, feeding confidential information to a Russian agent. You had Roger Stone and comrades in their own sort of independent uh, back channel, trying to open up a back channel to WikiLeaks, encouraged by Trump campaign sources, and maybe even Trump himself. And then you had this wild meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer, specifically to try to get information from the Russian government to help them uh, in the campaign against Hillary. So you had these sort of two independent efforts. I mean, there might've been a tiny, some tiny Venn diagramming going on, which were just gross <laughs> on, on many levels coming from these two camps. And so if you're a partisan, you can lock on to either one of those two and, and, uh, you know, and highlight how awful that campaign was or how awful this other campaign was, but it just feels like a, just a, a story that it reeks of 2016 ness 
I think it is a big problem when uh, opposition researchers try to weaponize criminal law enforcement. Yep. Because it hasn't really been done before. This was, in my experience at least, the first time that I've seen it um, done really successfully. And it was done really successfully. Uh, They weren't expecting Trump to win, but then when he did win, the whole thing balloons probably out of even what they were expecting to happen at that point. But not to sound like a baby, like they started it. Um, They wanted to be able to say that the Trump campaign was under criminal investigation. Um, I think that's, that is uh, another, another bridge from where opposition research used to be pre-2016 that's not great. Now, at the same time, remember, Trump in one of those debates said um, he wanted, you know, to use, if he won, like he would investigate Hillary Clinton and prosecute her. Uh, I thought that was incredibly dangerous rhetoric at the time, too. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, you know, some smoke around the Trump campaign. I would just emphasize that in the Mueller report, in the section on Russian ties to the Trump campaign, uh, the special counsel's office did not find evidence that the Trump campaign criminally accepted or solicited help from a foreign government. Now, that obviously there's a lot of words in there that you can say like, well, yes, maybe not criminally or maybe not solicited, whatever. But uh, we spent millions, tens of millions of dollars looking into this, David. (laughs) Yes, which is why I stated the facts of the engagement and not a legal characterization of the engagement. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, but you're right. Also interesting, by the way, that Sussman, the attorney who's been indicted, He's telling this to the FBI general counsel, who at the time is James Baker. James Baker was also under criminal investigation for the unauthorized disclosure of classified information, unrelated, by the way, to the Trump campaign. And a bunch of the headlines, uh, you see just like this random like, oh, he's under a leak, criminal leak investigation. And you just assume it must be connected. Um, you will note in none of those stories does it actually say it's connected. Uh, so he's then removed from his position shortly after uh, the Trump administration starts, moved to a different part of the FBI. So anyway, uh, if this actually went to trial, which I kind of doubt it will, yeah, Baker is most certainly going to have to take the stand and say whether uh, he would have taken Sussman's word for it, regardless if Sussman had told him what investigated, whether it was actually material, Um, And then he's going to be subject to cross-examination as well by whichever side doesn't like what he said. Yeah. This is, it could be a very messy, messy trial for the FBI. I'm curious whether Sussman, in my view, a plea deal in this case would probably lead to no jail time at all and just probation. Yeah. And, you know, and another part of this that is just, so he goes, he lies to the FBI um, the FBI says, you know, uh, the assertion in the indictment is, you know, maybe they would have had a different course of action had he not lied. But in the moment, in the moment, they got exactly what they wanted out of this, which, which yes. was the opening of an investigation that was then leaked to the media and comes out a week before the presidential election. I mean, you know, and the, the interesting thing to me is that in a normal election, 
one that has like some where the, where the two candidates sort of have some mooring and in integrity, <laughs> a revelation one week before the election of an FBI investigation being opened into one candidate's operations would have been an earthquake, just an earthquake. I mean, I'm remembering 2000, the weekend before the election, when it came out that years and years and year, year, decades ago or decades before George W. Bush had a drunk driving citation. Do you remember those days, Sarah, when life seemed simpler and a decades old drunk driving citation was earthquake news? At this point, you were like, okay, I'm having trouble sorting through the various FBI investigations. Um, I'm having trouble sorting through the various ridiculous scandals that we're dealing with. It was the Alpha Bank thing. It was a deal. It was a thing. But relative to all of the other deals and all of the other things, it was kind of dust in the wind. Um, but in another in another context, that could be election turning information right there. So well, and in I, fact, you could argue, I, I think there's 47 different reasons that you can point to that are but for. Uh, on why Trump won 2016. But certainly one of the most obvious ones is the FBI announcement that they've reopened the investigation into Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the, the troubling thing for me, though, David, is what you said, which is they got what they wanted in the short term. Mm -hmm. They got the FBI to open an investigation and then were able to leak that there was an open criminal investigation into this Russian bank pinging this mysterious server um, that means that other people are going to do it, frankly. Yeah. Like, things that work in campaigns get repeated. And just, you know, I say this over and over again to young people who want to work on campaigns. The winning campaign didn't do everything right and the losing campaign didn't do everything wrong. Uh, this will, I, I'm afraid, be a good example of that where it's like, ooh, you know, but for a bunch of other stuff, this actually would have been really effective. And yeah. from now on, we're going to go chit chat both sides of the campaign will go and chit chat with law enforcement with their oppo stuff um well i remember huh, quaintly pitching oppo to you know newspaper folks i had um <laughs> let's see i'm trying to i i think i can sit, share this it's been a long time in yes, one campaign you can share this in one campaign that was more than our a readers decade ago our, our listeners won't tell anybody <laughs> uh more than a decade ago, uh, there was a candidate who was very wealthy and involved in the energy sector, and I was uh, an opposition researcher assigned to it. And I was basically able to show a link that the money he was making and using in order to get some of the energy rights for what he wanted was potentially inadvertently, but that I can't prove, it was going to the Taliban. <laughs> So, I mean, the headline is, right, like, ex-candidate funding the Taliban. That would be a bombshell headline 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, as you can imagine. I didn't go to the FBI with that. I went to a newspaper with that. Uh, and I'm trying to convince a newspaper editor to publish it. It didn't occur to me to go to CFIUS or something who look into foreign investment um, problems like this. Uh, and now I really think, David, I think you would go straight to the law enforcement entity and not try to pitch your oppo to just media, because what you really want to pitch media is 
hey, newspaper editor, there's an investigation into him funding the Taliban. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the fact that this one reason why I think that this prosecution is very important is the reality that in the short term it all worked is such a powerful incentive to try it again with unscrupulous people. The fact that he's been indicted is a deterrent. And yeah, so, at least you need to say where you're coming from. Hey, I'm an opposition researcher with the cam with the opposing campaign. We have uncovered this information. You can double check my work. Here's everything that I have found, which is normally actually what an oppo person does. You have a binder and it's all footnoted and you're showing your work, yeah. um, which I do think that makes this sketchy. And um, also for lawyers, uh, very weird to me to lie about whether you're representing a client because um, you in some cases, of course, your representation of the client is not public and you will have a duty not to say who your client is, but you certainly have a duty to say, I am representing a client today and I am not at liberty to say who it is. You can't just say I'm here as a good citizen. And for a, an officer of the court to feel so comfortable saying that is strange. Uh, also, mm-hmm. the billing records, I did find it funny that he was so specific in his billing, like Talked about server issue for 24 minutes. By the way, you will note that is in a six-minute increment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not coincidental. Um, I wonder whether in the future some partners, especially those who work in politically sensitive areas, will be less specific with their billing records. <laughs> I, one can imagine. You know, part of it feels like just habit, you know? I'm just well, you habitual. want to show the client that, you know, you want to justify incredibly high rates and a huge bill yeah. that you're giving. And so what you turn over is, you know, it has this like bottom line number that's eye popping. But then underneath that is basically an Excel sheet looking table that shows every single six minutes that you spent working on the campaign. And so the campaign can feel good when like each one is sort of an itemized topic and everything else. But I think from now on, when you do that um, engagement letter, you're going to tell the campaign, hey, it's in your interest and it's in my interest that I simply either flat fee it or um, bill you generically, you know, talked about campaign issues, talked about politically yeah. sensitive issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's going to be very interesting to see how this works out. I, I feel like um, you're right that it will almost certainly plead out. Uh, it's going to be re- the materiality defense. Is going is a tough. It's a tough defense. It's a tough defense, and especially if since he came so late in the cam- campaign cycle, the FBI can say we might have taken a six week beat on this or an eight week beat on this to sort of. But um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And Durham isn't finished, so we'll we'll see what else comes out of his shop. Um, the big question, we- by the way, when he pleads out, if he pleads out. Uh, no jail time is my prediction. But the big question for me is, does he keep his law license? Ah, Because someone then turns this over to an ethics board for presumably New York. I assume he's barred in New York. Uh, he may be barred in multiple states. And so individual states ethics boards will then determine whether he can keep his law license or it could be part of the plea deal that he has to give up his law license. Um, that would be a real sticking point. You know, this he's not a a young, young chicken, but he's not out to pasture by any means. Right, right. And and again, if, you know, if all of this could be deterrence, 
a deterrent for this kind of these kind of shenanigans happening again. Uh, but we'll see. But Sarah, you've got an interesting Second Amendment topic upon which I have thoughts. Ooh, I do. So remember, there's this case coming up this fall. It's being argued in the November sitting uh, over New York's gun regulations. This is like the once in future case. We had a New York gun regulation case uh, that was uh, dismissed as improvidently granted last term, two terms ago, whatever it was. Uh, And now basically a different one is back up. Um, We're going to talk a lot about that come argument time. But there was a really interesting amici brief filed on behalf of Michael Ludig, Peter Keisler, and Carter Phillips and Stuart Gerson. So Michael Ludig is the reason that I want to talk about this brief. Michael Ludig was a Fourth Circuit judge um, appointed at the end of H.W.'s term. He was, in every telling of this story, it was him and Roberts for that associate justice position Mm, when mm O'Connor retired. Uh, Now, if you remember, Roberts is nominated for the associate justice position. Then when Rehnquist dies, he is moved up to the chief justice position. And then Alito, after Harriet Myers was first nominated, is put into that associate justice position. So that's why I say associate justice, even though Roberts is going to become chief justice. So it's Ludig and Roberts to the very end. Uh, There were some other names that were thrown out there, but like everyone looking back always does this like, ooh, what if it had been Ludig? Then would Roe have been overturned? Then, you know, et cetera. So what makes this amici brief really interesting to me is that Ludig, the guy who so many people, you know, think Roberts was the wrong choice, um, he says that based on a originalist and textualist understanding of the Second Amendment in the at the time of the founding, that absolutely carrying a firearm outside of the home was regulated, could be regulated, and therefore New York's law, not a problem. Yeah, it's ve- it's a very interesting brief. It really is, because essentially what he does, he does this thing that's very clever, and it actually reminds me of what the litigants in... Um, the Title VII litigation. Why am I blanking on the name of that case? All of a sudden, the Gorsuch opinion. Oh, Bostock. Extending, yeah, Bostock. Okay, it reminds me of the strategy the litigants took in Bostock, which was to say, okay, this decision. Uh, we've got, you know, we've got three judge, or at that time, four judges, and our that you know that are uh, that are ours. How are we going to get one more? And they said, well, we're going to get one more by making a textualist argument. And in this one, it looks like what they he's essentially done is say, well, you know, wait a minute. Then there's the there's this dispute over the exact standard to apply. Um, is it what a level of scrutiny, like strict scrutiny, or is it sort of this history and tradition, history and tradition kind of argument that Kavanaugh has explained, for example, in Heller too, the scope of the Second Amendment right embodies and maintains the balance historically and traditionally struck in the United States between public safety and the individual right to keep and bear arms. So it's a history and tradition test. So they go, okay, we know that Kavanaugh in his previous writings has adopted the history and tradition test. So here's what we're going to do. And there's evidence that Barrett has concurred with some of that. 
We're just going to make a history and tradition argument. And so they go back to not some of its colonial era um, statutes, some of its right after colonial era statutes, sort of doubling down on the strategy of originalist argument that holds the infallibility of the <laughs> essentially the colonial generation in, in understanding original intent. And, and cites to a bunch of statutes, for example, um, here's colonial, colonial, colonial era, 1686 New Jersey law, barring privately to wear any person from privately to wear any pocket pistol and providing that no planter shall ride or go armed with sword, pistol, or dagger. Um, 1699 New Hampshire, uh, preventing any person who, who shall go armed offensively. Then moving into the founding era, 1792 North Carolina, no person may go nor ride armed by night or by day in fairs, markets, nor in the presence of the king's justices or other ministers, nor in no parts elsewhere. Then you go on to some others where uh, it begins to look like after the founding of the U.S., uh, prohibitions, for example, here's 1786 Virginia, you may not go go ride armed by night nor by day in fairs or markets or in other places in terror of the country. You cannot ride or go armed offensively. This is Massachusetts to the fear or terror of the good citizens of the Commonwealth. Um, here's another one from Massachusetts. You cannot go uh, armed offensively by night or day in fear or affray of the majesty's liege people. So that's pre-colonial. I love the way people used to talk. His majesty's liege people. Tennessee, my own Tennessee, 1801. If any person shall publicly ride or go armed to the terror of the people or privately carry any dirk, large knife, pistol, or any other dangerous weapon to the fear or terror of any person. Now, what I found interesting about the argument is that it really emphasized the don't go armed part and it kind of glossed over to the fear or terror of any person part. And how I read that was that's a really good argument um, against or in favor of prohibitions on open carry and brandishing. That those are the, exactly the kinds of things that can cause fear or terror. Concealed carry um, by definition, if it's properly concealed, can't create fear or terror because you don't know. <laughs> you don't know if the person's armed. Um, but I I have long sort of thought of the second, the right to bear arms element of the Second Amendment as, um, I mean, the, the word bear, you know, it, you're, you're, you're carrying a weapon, you're bearing a weapon, and the right to keep or bear arms um, is going to mean that a, 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 uh, public entity is going to have have to protect the right to bear arms, either concealed or open, but it doesn't have to protect both. And if you're going to protect one, protecting concealed carry is far more important than protecting open carry because open carry has consequences for public fear and terror. And so that's kind of how I I, I kind I looked at that and I thought, huh. You're underplaying the fear or terror of any person part of this. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts were, Sarah. Uh, so I have substantive thoughts on the case and then uh, bigger thoughts on like the but for court history. Uh, substantively. So obviously bear has to mean something or else it could just say right. keep. So we have to give some yep. meaning to and bear. So on that, I agree with you. 
I do not agree with you that you have to go whole hog on either open carry or concealed carry. And I think that Ludig et al. make a pretty persuasive argument that this is a core state police power based on the history and that some restrictions clearly can apply to either of those. Well, I agree that some restrictions can apply. Like, I don't think I could carry a, um, I don't think I could carry a firearm into an airport. Uh, do you think that you could have the restriction that if you are going to have a firearm in your car, it must be locked with the clip separated? No. That that is still bearing an arm? No. No, that's bearing a piece of metal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So anyway, that's I guess that's where I'm coming from, that I think that the and bear, uh, based on the history that he's presented, obviously means something, but that it can be subject to pretty serious regulation. And the idea that it can't be is ahistorical at the time of the founding. I am persuaded to some extent by perhaps the emphasis that you place on the purpose test, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I don't know how much I am. <laughs> I think those, I'm partially you know, persuaded. There's there's a repeated use of words armed offensively, okay, yeah. not just armed, and then repeated emphasis on fear or terror. And so I think that the the obvious retort that an advocate of concealed carry. I am not an advocate of open carry, by the way. I clearly hate open carry. I'll just say that I don't see the purpose for it. I feel like it's LARP, militia LARPing often. And, and and that's the best case, by the way. It is the best case to sort of say, look at me. I support the Second Amendment. The worst case is like what we've seen in some of these um, protests of lockdowns and other things where people are patrolling outside or, or protesting outside of legislatures armed with AR-15s. There is one purpose for that, and that is to intimidate. Or if a pile of people showed up outside my house with AR-15s, the purpose for that is to intimidate. But perhaps, so David, there's a two-step originalism test here, which is first step, could a state under its police powers regulate the right to bear arms at the time of the founding? The answer is clearly mm-hmm. yes. Then a different second step is now in the modern era, how far can states go to regulate the right to bear arms? And perhaps that is not necessarily an originalism inquiry anymore. The originalism inquiry is simply, could you regulate that Right. And did the states have that power or the federal government? You know, like, so we determined that it's the states and they do have the power to regulate it clearly. Now, fast and forwarding, then, what right, what, what level should the states be able to do now? Um, and if there was a, a leeway, yes, all the states you point to chose to regulate that way in the offensively, but they were regulating it. So now states can still regulate it and they can do so in a bigger way. Uh, so I, I'm not even saying that's where I come down, but I think that's what this amicus brief argues persuasively. I think it's a, uh, it's the best originalist argument that I have read for limitations. And what I hear you saying is it's hard to get away from levels of review. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's very hard to get away. So, but the other thing that I would say is that if you're talking about sort of the the New York structure, which is not what's called a shall issue state. In other words, that if you satisfy, because very only a minority of states are like Tennessee now, where if I have a right to carry a gun, if I have a right to own a gun, then I have a right to carry a gun. 
but even that's not unlimited. I, I, I private citizens can tell me no, no guns, airports, no guns. I mean, there, there are lots of places in which guns are prohibited still. So it's not completely unlimited, but, um, the New York issue was essentially this idea of there being a right, a right to bear arms that there seems to be no existence of a right. That's, that's the problem with the New York statute. It is, I have to show to a state official a particular need. Well, that's not a right. So, you know, the difference with a, a situation where you, I have a right that can then be subject to certain kinds of limitations is different from a situation where I have no right at all, but it can be granted a privilege in certain circumstances. And I think that that's, if I'm arguing the case, I'm saying there, the two, two words are right and bear. And I'm not saying that the right means unlimited anywhere, anytime, any, no, of course not. But right still means right and bear still means bear. And now we can talk about some limitations on that, but that's not the New York situation. The New York situation is no right. And that's where I would plunge. And, and if the petitioners go, go too far and try to you know, swing for the fences on a Supreme Court opinion, it could really hurt them under the old, the old legal maxim, Sarah, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Uh, look, I think you're right about how the court's going to come out on this case, but the standard will matter where they come down on the originalism will matter for future cases in which other states are sort of swept up in the New York problem. But let me get to my bigger picture on Ludwig versus Roberts. So remember, I've talked about my two axes on the on any given justice. There's the conservative to liberal axis, and then there's the institutional to the four corners axis, meaning you just apply the, the law to the facts, and that's the end of the inquiry, or the external inquiries, whether it's the um, integrity of the court and public opinion or uh, ability to give guidance to lower courts or the orderly application of the new rule. Those would all be institutionalist concerns. Um, so most people have pointed that like Roberts is this super institutionalist chief judge, chief justice, and that that's why you're getting all of these outcomes that they don't like as conservatives. What's interesting to me here is that you're seeing some conservatives who've seen this brief, at least freak out that like, <gasps> Ludig would have been just as bad. <laughs> but that's, that is the case if you are only outcome determinative. So yeah. Ludig here is still very four corners, not institutionalist at all. He doesn't care about in this brief, at least what the country thinks about the court ruling in this case. There's no sort of larger, well, it's just so vital that, New York's law gets to stand. It is about the text, the history, the time of the founding, uh, et cetera. So what's, what's funny, I think, for folks who are mad about the chiefiness of the chief, and then now horrified that Ludig would uphold the New York law, potentially, they're coming at it from totally different positions. And I think as I consider myself a legal conservative, what's frustrating about that is uh, the legal conservative movement was never supposed to be outcome determinative. It was always supposed right. to be process. So as a legal conservative, either tell me that you don't like an institutionalist judge, then fine, then you need to be okay with what Ludig's done here, at least the way he got there, or come up with better history. 
uh, which I'm open to, by the way. I understand that you may just disagree with Ludic's history because you have your own. But don't yeah. tell me you disagree with it because it can't possibly be the case that New York's law gets to stand. Um, yeah. How is that any different than, you know, the living constitution? I have a hot take here. Sarah. Oh, yeah? Yeah? Hot take me. Very, very super. This is scorching hot. Okay. Some people claimed originalism while only wanting outcomes that they liked. No. Yes. I'm going to stand on that. <laughs> well, I find it very frustrating myself. I would like people to be principled and whether they're pro-institutionalist, pro-four corners, um, conservative, liberal in their interpretation, how strict they're going to be on that. Great. But I'm very tired of the, I look at the outcome first and then decide whether your methodology was sound. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even worse than that, I'm going to look at the outcome first and decide whether or not you're tough enough to be a judge. <laughs> but it <laughs> is, you can go through so much of the, if Ludic had gotten that associate spot, would he still have gotten bumped to chief justice the same as way Roberts did? Uh, and like how different the court would be. It's a fun game to play if you're looking for late night scotch induced parlor games. Whiskey and bourbon will also work for this parlor game. <laughs> um, the kind of parlor game that probably only your household would play. All right. Well, next time any of you are over at my house, that's the game we're going to play. <laughs> Be prepared. All right. So are you ready for this really interesting case? Devin Nunez versus Ryan Lizza and Hearst Magazine Media Inc. Um, I guess the subtitle of this one is be careful about your clickbait headlines and your retweets. Yeah. Um, I think you and I might come out differently on this, by the way. So you, you tell it, I want to hear your version. Okay. So this is an interesting case in which, um, it's a little, it's a little bit convoluted. So I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to summarize and try to summarize accurately without neglecting too many of the interesting quirks. But essentially what happened is Esquire, which was then owned by Hearst, published an article about Representative Nunez um, and a farm his family owns. Now, uh, apparently the farm is not, the farm's owned and operated by his family without the congressman's involvement and he has no financial interest in the farm. So this is, this is Congressman Nunez has a family. His family has a farm. Um, his family operates the farm. Nunez does not run it. Nunez not involved in it. And so there is a piece written that says Devin Nunez, and here's the title: Devin Nunez's family farm is hiding a politically explosive secret. Uh, the print vision uh, version isn't called "Milking the System." And so, get um, it? Essentially, milking cows. Yeah. Ha-ha. Yeah. Oh. Ah, yes. <laughs> and so the two uh, real secrets or the pl thing that's politically explosive is that the that family uh, um, apparently does not want people to know that the farm's in Iowa um, rather than California and that there is some evidence, uh, according to two sources, sources with firsthand knowledge, New Star, that's the farm did indeed rely at least in part on undocumented labor. Labor. One source had personally sent undocumented workers to Anthony Nunez Jr.'s farm for jobs and asserted that the farm was aware of their status. 
And um, so anyway, the, the essentially the scandal here, and that's that's what's the Nunez family farm is hiding a politically explosive secret. So the scandal here is that a farm not operated by Nunez secretly is in Iowa and may have hired illegal immigrant labor. Okay, so that that's the scandal. Um, then the implication is there was an the, there was uh, sort of two claims here made. One of defamation, in other words, that there that the story was materially false, and another one was this interesting thing called defamation by implication. In other words, that um, the politically explosive secret, the phrases conspired with others, implied his involvement, and. So what ended up happening is the court said, no, this was not defamation. And no, as a general matter, it wasn't defamation by implication. However, that there was this interesting tweet after the complaint was filed and after um, Nunes had denied the claims. And in that one, so the the tweet said, um, so... Um, Liza tweeted on November 20th after the complaint was filed, I noticed that Devin Nunez is in the news. If you're interested in a strange tale about Nunez, small town Iowa, the complexities of immigration policy, a few car chases and lots of cows, I've got a story for you. And tweeted it back out. Now, uh, essentially the reason why the court dismissed the earlier defamation by implication claim is that at the time of publication, it didn't meet the elements. Now what they're saying is, there's an issue of fact as to whether essentially Liza could have been on notice that there was a that you know that this raised the actual malice standard put it in play and that this tweet was a republication. It was not the original publication, it was republication. And therefore, there needs to be more fact-finding to determine whether there could have been actual malice. Is that a fair enough summary? Sure. Yeah. On that part so, of it, there's also, there was some other parts, but yeah, that's the part yeah. I'm interested in. <laughs> that's what I'm interested in too. So what do we disagree on? Well, I didn't give you my opinion. Yeah, what? what do you expect? <laughs> there's nothing to disagree on, yeah. <laughs> what do you expect that we'll disagree on? Um, first of all, I think that the defamation by implication is a really important part of defamation law because otherwise you could get around defamation by simply making sure that you only state things that are fact, even if they're unrelated, squeeze them together, put in a like fancy headline and then say, see, I only stated facts when like any normal person reading that would have assumed you were trying to tell them this other thing. Um, you know, like putting. Uh, Mary is six months pregnant. Six months ago, she went to a conference with Representative Smith. Right. And then the headline is Representative Smith has a big problem. <laughs> right. That's defamation by implication. But if you only have right. regular defamation law, there's nothing defamatory there. If both of those individual statements are true. So first of all, uh, defamation by implication, an important part of defamation law. Secondly, I, of course, think the actual malice standard, uh, similar to some justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that's totally ahistorical and made up. And uh, so I am at least for lowering that to a bar that you can get over, setting aside who the plaintiff is in this case, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, when you get a complaint, so part of the reason you can't possibly get actual malice in the first instance is because Nunez never told Liza that it wasn't true or Esquire. Yeah. Um, he wasn't able to reach them at all. And so certainly no actual malice. Then you get sued and in the complaint, there is, you know, paragraph after paragraph of Nunez denies, Nunez denies, and he sued you over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you quote, republish it. Now does that reach actual malice? Boy, I think it might. Yeah. Oh, I think it might. So the, the problem here is one of the big questions here in the case was, was this tweet republication? And it seems to me that if you are new, if you're affirmatively putting it back into the bloodstream and it, it wasn't just a retweet, like an auto retweet of an old article, I might've had more sympathy for the argument that it wasn't republication. If you, you know, a lot of media companies, they set up a sort of auto tweeting cycle of articles. Yeah. No, so the purpose it. was to get it back in the bloodstream in a different news a, cycle. With commentary attached to the tweet. Yeah, new commentary. Devin Nunes new is in the news, if you're interested. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I do think on this really key issue, uh, was this was this republication? I do think that that's correct. I do think that's correct. This is republication. If you um, just the way the way the system works, you are affirmatively the tweet itself is a publication. The tweet itself is a publication. The tweet itself contained commentary. Um, and the tweet itself referenced the article. So, and, and brought readers to the article. And, and I'm sure, you know, there's going to be analytic data that indicates that X number of readers actually came to the article for the first time as a result of that, uh, republication. So on that key issue of republication, um, I think that that is the court's correct on that. I, I think I have a hard time kind of seeing the other side of that argument, to be honest, when you attach new commentary. Um, uh, never mind. Then we do agree. What's now this uh, the circuit court in this case is sending it back to the district court for further legally stuff on that point. Um, so assume it's republication you still have the problem of, you know, they could prove, for instance, Esquire, Hearst Media, et cetera, could prove that Nunez did know about his family's yeah. farm habits. Um, I don't know quite how they would prove that, but they could, in theory, in which case this would all fall apart. Um, but I think it goes to something good in journalism if people actually take this to heart and if Hearst Media loses. They didn't need to write the article the way that they did. As you said at the very yeah. beginning, they put an explosive clickbaity headline yep. because they wanted this to be the implication. And it actually still would have been a news relevant story that a uh, chairman of a House committee at the time um, often mentioned that he was from a farming family in California, that there was no farm in California. And that in fact, the family farm um, hired illegal immigrants, something that he had tried to legislate against whether he knew or not, like you're saying how important farmers are. Well, these farmers are being forced to hire illegal immigrants because of wage hours or who knows, like you clearly don't understand the actual problem faced by farmers. That is a news story. 
but it wouldn't have nearly gotten the traction that this story did. One of their defenses when they brought this was (laughs) this was rhetorical hyperbole contained in a work of, quote, literary journalism. There was nothing at the top of this article that said that it wasn't factual, that you weren't supposed to take it literally, that it was literary. Um, I, to me, this is actually quite different than the Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson. Um, you know, no reasonable person would have assumed this was fact because if you actually look at the transcript, they were stating their opinion on any number of things. In this case, it's a news article. At all points in it, it says it's a news article. Literary journalism? Is that what is that? Is that like Michael Wolf, where you're making up quotes because it gives you the feeling of being in the room? You don't need to source things. Nope, he does source things through the article. So uh, I found that to be a disturbing defense that, in fact, the court rejected in a good way. Yeah, you know, and I would also say that if if Leza had retweeted the article with some commentary on top of it, but the article had been amended to include all of the denials yes. from the Nunes camp, that would also, that would be different. But I do think that this, um, you raise a really interesting point about defamation by implication. And I think as an obviously correct doctrine, um, as with all defamation doctrines, it could it can be dangerous, but as a, as a matter of principle, it's an obviously correct doctrine exactly in the way that you, that you described it. And, you know, look, some of these defamation cases that are winding their way through the court system are can be really good correctives to some of the worst impulses of click, clickbait journalism. Um, you know, one of the things that you find out when you dive more into the journalistic world, and a lot of people don't know this at all, a lot of people who write articles, they don't see the headline <laughs> until the article is published. And then, the, for me. And then the, I'm assuming it's true for you. Uh, well, I write my own headlines most of the, now I, when I write for time, that's what I mean. I, yeah. When you write for time, yeah, you don't I, see the headlines. When I write for Politico, I don't see the headlines. Yeah. I mean, I have started to see them, you know, I have started to see them more recently, but, um, you know, sort of what's the AB test might be or whatever. And the AB test is sometimes journalism, uh, journalistic outlets will test headlines, different headlines. And so, but it often Often, journalists are quite surprised by the headline that comes out when their piece comes out. And then what what follows is an entire series of uh, an an entire layer of online commentary based on the headline only that the journalist did not write. And and the headline writers are often have one thing in mind, one thing in mind, and that is how can I write something that is at least somewhat connected (laughs) to the content below that will draw the most eyeballs to the content content below. And, and hopefully this can be a corrective uh, to that tendency. I mean, if you're facing a defamation suit that a big chunk of it, of the emotional appeal of it, sort of that, that judges are people too, um, why would a judge be drawn to a defamation by implication kind of argument? Is that headline... <laughs> Then you know maybe journalists need more input into headlines, and maybe headline headlines need to be less clickbaity. Just a thought. I'm for it. All right, now Sarah, 
Do we need to get to the most edifying part of this podcast? Indeed, David. So let me read you the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. And all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Sounds pretty normal. Sounds like what we've been using this whole time. But there's a little bit of a problem in that sentence. What do you think the state and district wherein the crime was committed refers to, David? I would think it refers to the state and the district. (laughs) So there are 94 U.S. attorney districts in the country. There are 93 U.S. attorneys. Every district that I am aware of uh, falls within the lines of the state. So for instance, Oklahoma inexplicably has three districts, but they all are within Oklahoma. Um, whereas, you know, states much larger than Oklahoma only have one or two. It's very strange. But a listener sent me a law review article called The Perfect Crime. Dun, dun, dun. So this is by Brian Colt. He was at the time an associate professor of law at Michigan State University. And uh, he has sent this to the Department of Justice back in 2004. So before I went and explained this to you, I went and looked up on the Department of Justice website and uh, nothing has changed. So I'm going to tell you about the perfect crime, according to Brian Colt, who, best I can tell, is spot on. So. The District of Wyoming, Wyoming only has one district, encompasses Yellowstone National Park, the vast majority of which is in Wyoming, except for two little pieces, which are in Montana and Idaho. Mm -hmm. But when they drew the district, they just thought it made more sense, basically, because at the time there wasn't a state of Idaho and, uh, and Montana, by the way, to just have Yellowstone all be in one guy's problem, you know? But That Sixth Amendment thing says you have to have a jury wherein the crime was committed that are from the state and the district. So here's the perfect crime. If you commit a murder in Yellowstone Park, but the 50 miles, 50 square miles or so that are in Idaho, you would have to draw a jury from the state of Idaho. No problem. There's a lot of people who live in Idaho. But the district of Wyoming. So you need people who live in Idaho in that 50 square miles that falls into Yellowstone Park. And do you know what the population of that 50 square miles is, David? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say zero. It's zero. So you could not convene a jury under the Sixth Amendment for a crime committed in the Idaho part of Yellowstone State Park, uh, Federal Park, sorry. Um, Now, here's the problem, David. Um, I don't know a lot of judges who are going to say like, oh, you murdered, you know, a park ranger. And so uh, since we can't convene a jury, I guess we're just going to let you go. Right. But at the same time, the text but of what's the, the legal Amendment, basis? Yeah, yeah, that is a bit of a of a sticky wicket, if you will. And doesn't this doesn't this just couldn't this be fixed quickly by act of Congress redrawing the District of Wisconsin in the District of Idaho? 28 USC, Section 131 just needs a tiny little amendment 
uh, where in Idaho is now Idaho and Montana is Montana and Wyoming is Wyoming and Yellowstone's boundaries don't matter anymore. It would fix the whole thing. But um, yeah, so David, for the murders you are considering committing or, you know, it doesn't have to be murder. There's any number of other federal crimes that you may want to commit. I would recommend that 50 mile stretch in Yellowstone. Yes, it's going to be difficult to get to. There's some treacherous terrain in the Idaho portion, but um, you know, it, where there's a will, there's a way. But Idaho could still reach me. The state of Idaho could still reach you if there is a, uh, a similar state crime. So yes, if you murdered the park ranger, you would not be able to be tried federally in theory, but you could be tried in the state. But there are things that are federal crimes and not state crimes. Right, right. So this is less how to get away with murder and more how to get away with the niche area of crimes where there is no state equivalent. Yes. But okay. still. Yeah. A little less dramatic. <laughs> I mean, a tiny bit, a tiny bit less dramatic. All right. Well, I'm going to come up with a cool federal crime that's not a state crime in Idaho. And you're going to be like, oh, man. How to get away with interstate mail fraud? Yes, perhaps so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That, I feel like we overhyped that. No, 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 come on. That's so perfect. It involves, okay. you know, the, the part of U.S. history that gets the most amount of oversized coverage, that like 10 or so years of the Wild West. Okay, well, I, I, in the interest of avoiding the non-clickbaity headline, I will now urge our, our, our producing team not to create a headline that says how to get away with murder. How about how to get away with interstate mail fraud? <laughs> Fair, good, excellent. Not defamation by implication. So, outstanding. All right, well, um, that that is still an interesting, fascinating quirk of the law, and we appreciate a listener sending it to us and please keep sending us material like the exquisite photoshopped image of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dress um, that said, instead of tax the rich, the perfect advisory opinion slogan, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law which in all fairness doesn't look as good on a dress as tax the rich. <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm yeah. Ignore me on all, you know, uh, sartorial based assessments, but we, we appreciate very much the input, the feedback and the interesting little quirks of the law that you send our way. All right. I think that's it. And so we will be back on Thursday. And until then, go please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and check us out at thedispatch.com. 